Hey everybody, it's Matt. Welcome or welcome back to the Journey Church Podcast. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can automatically get our weekly episodes. And you might want to go ahead and subscribe to our Journey YouTube channel as well. You'll find messages, music, interviews, inspiring stories, and more for you all right there. Now, I hope this episode helps you take your next step in following Jesus. I want to start by asking you a question, but I need to define what I mean by this question. The question is this, is it easier to follow Jesus in adversity or in success? Is it easier to follow Jesus in adversity or success? But when I talk about following Jesus, whenever we talk about around here, we don't mean what maybe has been explained or modeled to you before. And that is this, in most churches, you know, growing up, maybe you heard this, to follow Jesus just meant, well, I believe in Jesus, you know, to follow Jesus just meant, well, okay, I've I prayed a prayer, you know, I went down the front, like whatever the deal was at that church. I, I just, I believe in Jesus, you know, I'm, I'm good, I'm a Christian, maybe you go so far, I've, I've been baptized, you know, like everything's good. And that's what most people think of. That's actually not what we're talking about because, this is going to be shocking to some of you, not one time did Jesus ever look at anyone and say, you know what, I want you to pray a prayer right now that you believe in me and then you're all good. He didn't do that. If you don't believe me, just read the Gospels. He never did that. He offered a very different invitation. His invitation was not just to believe, because anybody can do that. His invitation was to follow him. And by follow him, what he meant was this. He meant, I want you to begin to emulate me and how I'm living. I want you to begin to progressively believe and behave a little bit more like me so that eventually I can form my character in you. That's what he means by follow. To follow infers Movement. It's not just, well, I checked the box, I prayed the prayer, and got baptized, and I believed. No, no, no. This involves movement, which is why all of us, no matter where you are in your faith journey, you know, you don't believe in God all the way to, I've been following God for a long time. All of us have another step we can take because all of us can grow to become a little bit more like Jesus. So, with that understanding, let me ask the question again. Is it easier to follow Jesus, to trust him, to forgive, to serve, to give, to love the way he did, to show patience and kindness the way he did, you know, you, whatever, uh, so many things we could talk about there, whatever you want to fill in the blank. Is it easier to follow Jesus like that when you're facing adversity or when you're facing success? Now, I'm going to give you my opinion because I've got the mic and I'm on stage and most of you are too scared to do this. So you got to listen to me, right? So here's my opinion. I actually think it's easier to follow Jesus when you're facing adversity. Now, sometimes it just submarines people's faiths, but I don't actually see that very often. And the reason I think it's easier to trust and to follow Jesus when we're facing adversity is because adversity humbles us. Adversity reminds us that we are not in control. And once we realize we're not in control, well, what do we all want to do? Well, we're open to looking to the one that we think has control, right? So it's so much easier just to lean in and to look up when we're struggling and God, okay, I know I'm not in control and I need your help, I need your help, I need your help. But when life is going well, and maybe this is where a lot of us are, quite honestly, I know we've all got our issues and our problems, but most people in the world would trade positions with any of us, so things are pretty good for us. When you're facing success, when things are going well, I think it's a lot harder to keep following Jesus. And the reason I say that is because there is something in all of us that when things are going well, I begin to feel like I am in control and I begin to believe I'm responsible for all the good things happening in my life, you know? Pride starts to creep in and I think, man, I'm handling this well. Look at what I did there and look at what I did there. And, you know, I got this all under control. 
It's just, it's just so much more difficult to humble ourselves and realize we're not in control when things are going good. Which is maybe why, and I, you know, I think this is human nature, but this has certainly been something I've been reminded of. Because when I was growing up, teenage years, college years, you know, even today every now and then, I bet I was told a thousand times by my mom and dad, they would look at me and say, Matt, pride goes before fall. Pride goes before fall. And still to this day, I have no idea. I don't understand why they felt the need to tell me that. That was sarcasm, if you weren't sure. Yeah, it was like, I guarantee you they're, oh my gosh, he does not have any humility. We better remind him. We better remind him. He thinks he's in control. We better remind him, right? Because there's just something about when things are going well that we go, oh, I got it. I got it. And I'm responsible for making it all happen. Today, we're wrapping up this series called The Life and Times of Joe Jacobson. The Life and Times of Joe Jacobson. We're learning about and walking through the story of Joseph, who's the son of Jacob, who's the son of Isaac, who's the son of Abraham that we have all heard of. And this is an extraordinary story of extremes because Joseph experienced highs that were higher than we'll ever experience. He experienced lows lower than we'll ever experience. And Joseph held in his hands a power, and we're going to talk more about this in a minute, but a power that was greater than any of us will ever have. And yet throughout this story, there is a question that has just kept percolating, you know, floating up to the surface. I find it to be such a challenging question. It's one of those questions that once it gets lodged in your head and you start thinking about it, it's hard to escape it. And it creates some tension inside of us because it challenges some of these natural responses we have, especially when things are going well. The question is, well, what would someone like you do who was confident that God was with them? Because this seems to be the way Joseph lived for the majority of his life. As he went through all of these lows that would have, you know, just destroyed so many people. He continued to respond. He continued to act as if he was totally confident God was with him. Joseph's story, just to give you a quick recap and get everybody up to speed. So we picked up Joseph's story when he was 17 years old. At the time, he was the youngest of 11. So he had 10 other brothers. He was the youngest of 11. And there was a ton of family drama because Joseph was daddy's boy. He was daddy's favorite. And all the other brothers, everybody else knew he was daddy's favorite. Jacob didn't even try to hide it. I mean, he gave him a coat that he wouldn't give anybody else. It was a special coat. And he took care of him. He didn't send him out to work when all the other brothers had to go work. I mean, there's so much going on there. There was so much jealousy. And then to make matters worse, at 17, Joseph has a dream where he believed God, sh God shows him his future. God shows him, I have a purpose for you. And oh, by the way, Joseph, one day you're going to be in a position where your dad and all of your brothers, they're going to bow down to you. And Joseph does what any 17-year-old would do. He tells his brothers, you know, it's like, hey, guess what, guys? You know, God told me. And he just kind of rubs salt in the wound to the point that they hate him so much when they finally get an opportunity. At first, they decide to kill him. And then one of them has the brilliant idea, no, 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 let's just fake his death, convince daddy he's dead, and let's sell him into slavery because then we can make some money off of him. You, I mean, it is just family dysfunction at its finest. And so they do. They sell Joseph. He's taken down to Egypt where he is sold to Potiphar, who is the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And yet, in that terrible situation, Joseph somehow believes God's still with him. And so he does whatever he can do to be the best slave he can be. And Potiphar's like, man, his God seems to be taking good care of him. I'm going to make him over everything. And so Potiphar ends up getting blessed and being, becoming rich and successful because of Joseph. Joseph gets a little better slave quarters. It was not a good trade, but that's pretty much what happened. Until 
Potiphar's wife eventually begins to proposition Joseph. Long story we won't go into, but Joseph says, no, 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 until he insults her so much she accuses him of rape, and then Joseph gets thrown into prison where, again, this guy just feels so unrealistic where he's like, well, I guess I'll be the best prisoner I can be, you know? And the prison warden's like, hey, let me give him some responsibility. So Joseph ends up, you know, running the prison basically for the prison warden, and the prison warden is successful because of Joseph. A little time passes, and we looked at this last week. Pharaoh gets angry with his chief cupbearer and his chief baker. He has them both thrown into prison. Long story short, after a little while, one night they both have a dream, and they're so disturbed by it, they don't know what it means. And Joseph says, hey, I think I can interpret this for you. I think God will show me what your dream means. And so he does. And he tells the cupbearer, hey, here's what it means. He tells the baker, here's what yours means. And sure enough, three days later, everything comes true for both of them. The cupbearer is, you know, freed by Pharaoh, put back in his job in the palace. Everything's good. The baker, well, he loses his head, just like Joseph had said. And everything's terrible. But all the dreams, you know, all his interpretations come true. But you find this little line at the end of that part of the story that says, but the cupbearer, he forgot all about Joseph. He wasn't about to try to get him out of prison. More time passes, more time passes. And then Pharaoh has two dreams that trouble him so much, nobody can give him an interpretation. And the cupbearer's like, oh yeah. Well, Pharaoh, I hate to bring this up, but you remember when you had me down there where there was a Hebrew slave, it's so odd. Hebrew slave, but he somehow knew what my dream meant. Maybe he'll know what yours means. And they bring Joseph and it's just, it's a part of the story that if you don't understand the context, you're just like, this is so unbelievable, it would never happen. But Joseph looks at Pharaoh and says, God will help me interpret your dream. And he does, and he interprets it. He says, you're going to have seven years of extraordinary abundance with your crops here in Egypt, Pharaoh. And then after that, God's telling you there are going to be seven years of famine unlike anything you've ever experienced. And then jo Joseph says, hey, uh, let me just give you some unsolicited advice, Pharaoh. And he goes ahead, gives him a plan of what to do. And Pharaoh's like, oh my gosh, the, your God, he's clearly with you. I'm putting you in charge of the whole deal. And that's where we left off last time. With, Pharaoh, or with uh, Joseph going from a prisoner to prime minister of Egypt in about two hours. And sure enough, everything unfolds. Everything unfolds just the way that Joseph said it would unfold. Egypt has seven years of extraordinary abundance, and Joseph's in charge of everything, and he levies a 20% tax on the, you know, all the grain, and he stores it up, stores it up, stores it up. Then sure enough, the famine hits. And about two years into the famine, they've got plenty of grain. Joseph's selling it back to the people. But the famine hasn't just hit Egypt. The famine has hit the entire region. And this is the point where the story has a twist that none of us if we didn't already know the story, none of us would ever expect this to happen. The writer tells us this, that when Jacob, which was Joseph's dad, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he looked at his sons. Now, we're going to see this in a minute. He has had another son since Joseph supposedly died. He, Joseph now has a younger brother that he doesn't know anything about named Benjamin. So he's got 11 sons again, okay? And he looks at them and he says, why do you just keep looking at each other? In other words, this was uh, his way of saying, hey, we're all starving. This problem will not fix itself. You need to do something. I can relate to this because when our dogs are banging on the door and my two kids just sit there, I'm like, is anybody paying attention? Why don't you do something? You know, that was, that was the kind of the mentality or the attitude that Jacob had. He's like, this thing's not gonna fix itself. Why aren't you guys doing something? You should be headed to Egypt. He goes on. He says, I have heard there is grain in Egypt, so go down there, buy some for us, so that we may live and not die, because it is 
that drastic. And so the story continues and says, then 10 of Joseph's brothers. Wait a minute, I thought there were 11, not counting Joseph now. There was. But now daddy's favorite is the new youngest, Benjamin, and he doesn't have to do any work, okay? So he sends the other 10, and they went down to buy grain from Egypt. Now, this is the point in the story that if it's a movie, the dramatic music starts. Do you know how you watch movies sometimes, and the, the writer of the movie will let you in on a tension that's coming that the, the characters in the movie they don't know about yet? Well, that's what the writer of Genesis is doing. He is about to let us in on a tension that is coming that you have to remember. These 10 brothers, they didn't know any of this was coming. They didn't know how the story ended. They did not know what was about to happen. But the writer lets us know. He adds in, verse 6, Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. It's like, oh my gosh, it's coming. It's coming. Because these guys are about to head down. And they're about to try to buy grain from their brother that they sold into slavery. Now, I just want you to think about this for a minute before we move on. At this moment, Joseph has something that all of us have wished we could have. Joseph has the upper hand. Joseph has all the power over the people who have hurt him most deeply. Real quick, this is a broad stroke, and this isn't true in every situation, but I think it's generally true. Eventually, the people who hurt you will need you. Eventually, the people who've hurt you will cycle back, and they will want something from you. This is just the way life generally works. They cycle back, and they want something from you. And in that moment, you have to decide... What you're going to do. This is what happened to Joseph. And all the tests he had had of, you know, you're going to trust God when everything's so bad. Trust God when you're a slave. Trust God when you're a prisoner. None of those were as difficult to test as what he was about to experience when he had success. When he had all the power in his hands. The writer goes on to tell us. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground and I'm reading into this but I'm sure Joseph's like the dream the dream the dream it was true you know it's like I told you all this was going to happen writer goes on says as soon as Joseph saw his brothers he recognized them but he pretended to be a stranger because they hadn't seen each other in 23 years he pretended to be a stranger and he spoke harshly to them so instead of speaking Hebrew to him he spoke Egyptian so and you know through an interpreter so that they wouldn't Get an idea of who he was. I'm sure he had his whole Egyptian garb, you know, his get up on. They didn't recognize him. He spoke harshly to them. He said, where do you come from, he asked. And they were probably, we're from the land of Canaan. We, We just came here to buy food. And then the writer tells us that although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. And now here Joseph is and he's holding. Think about this. He is holding in his hand all the power to get the payback that any of us would want. He has the upper hand. He can do whatever he wants to do. He can do what, let's be honest, he can do what all of us would want to do. See, one of the greatest tests of whether you actually believe God is in control of your future and your outcomes is not when life's out of control. You know you don't have any control then. 
It's when you're holding all the power when things are going well and when somebody who's hurt you circles back to you and you realize, oh, I can do right now what I've always wanted to do. That mom or dad who abandoned you or was disappointed you so much and then they circle back and they need you for something. Or that brother, that sister who they were just so condescending to you, you know, and they acted like that you, you know, they didn't believe in you at all. But now they're at a point in life where they need you because you married well and you've been smart with your money and they haven't, you know. It's like, oh, now I need something for my kids or now I need you to help me figure this out. Or maybe it's the ex who just made the divorce so bitter and has just made custody so brutal. But now they're circling back and they actually need something from you and you're like, <laughs> can't believe you would ask. But now's my chance. I don't know, it may be the boss who you know, fired you without reason or coworker that disappointed you or friend that betrayed you. But it's funny how in life, the people who have hurt us always seem to cycle back and need us. And if you have been following this story and you've thought, oh my gosh, I, I could never be Joseph. I mean, look how he responded when he was a slave and a prisoner. Like, I, I can't even relate. Well, you're about to be able to relate to Joseph now because he does not pass this test at first. Joseph does exactly what all of us would want to do. I'm going to summarize a little bit of this for you, okay? What happens is this. Joseph looks back at him when they says, no, no, we're just here to buy food. You know, we're from Canaan. And he says, you are not, you're spies. Every one of you are spies. Y'all just came here to try to scope this place out and you're going to try to, you know, whatever, whatever. And it scares them to death. And I'm sure Joseph's thinking, perfect. Because do you know how much fear I felt when I was down in that well and then when you sold me into slavery, you deserve to feel a little fear. And he just keeps pressing them. And they're so scared, they start giving him their story. No, 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 We're, no, really. We've got a dad back home, you know, in Canaan. And we've got a younger brother. And this is the first Joseph's heard about him. We've got a younger brother who stayed there, Benjamin. You know, he's, daddy just loves him, so he left him there. And, and we had another brother, but he's no more. That's the way they put it. He's no more. And Joseph's like, really? Tell me more about that brother, you know? What happened there? They're just, they're just so scared, you know? They're so scared. And Joseph realizes, I'm going to get some revenge. I can pay them back. So he says, I don't believe any of you. And he has them thrown into prison, the same prison where he spent a lot of his young life. He has them thrown into prison. And this is, I'm making this up. But I think he had them thrown into prison with a note to his buddy, the prison warden. Hey, most rat-infested cells you got for these guys, right? It's like, let them get a little bit and a little taste of what I went through, you know? So for three days, they sit in prison. And then he brings them back. And he says, all right, I'm going to make you an offer. If you guys can go back and get your younger brother and bring him back here and prove to me that your story's true, then I'll believe you're not spies. And he points to one of the brothers, Simeon, and he says, but he's staying in prison, and I'm not letting him out until I see your younger brother. So they're like, oh, my gosh, it's terrible. So anyway, they, Joseph gives them some grain. They give him all the silver to buy it. Off they go. What they don't know is Joseph has commanded his stewards, I want you to slip all the silver back into their bags. So they get to the first night, you know, and get, open their bags. They're getting ready to camp out for the night, and they all find their silver, and it scares them to death. They're like, oh, no, now, we don't know how this happened, but now he's going to think we stole the money from him, you know. So we, they go back to Jacob, and they tell Jacob everything that happened. And they're like, Simeon's in prison, Dad. And the only way we can get him out is if we take Benjamin back. And, oh, my gosh, this money was here. We got to take it back, and let's, you know, whatever, whatever. And telling Jacob all this. And Jacob looks back at him and says, there is no way. There's no way. I've already lost one son that I love deeply. There's no way I'm letting you take Benjamin. 
Well, yeah, Dad, but what about Simeon? Ah, stuff happens sometimes, kids. That's, I mean, that is really how he, it's like, do you not, no, don't love him nearly as much as Benjamin. I'm not trading, you know. It's just unreal. Talk about dysfunction. So anyway, he won't let them go back until time passes, lots of time, and they run out of grain again, and they're about to starve. And the sons come back to Jacob, and they're like, Dad, we could have been to Egypt twice already. Why? We're going to die if you don't let us go back. And finally, Jacob relents. He says, all right, take my son, you know, take him back. And they start swearing, Dad, we will not let anything happen to him. As a matter of fact, one of the sons, this is so weird, but it's cultural. One of the sons is like, hey, if anything happens to Benjamin, you can kill both my sons. It's like, what? You know, doesn't seem to be the way to make a promise. But anyway, that's, that's what they do, okay? So they head back. They head back. And they take all their silver that, you know, they found in their bags along with more silver, you know, to buy more grain. They take Benjamin, they head back, and they get back there. And when they get back, Joseph has instructed for them to be brought to his house to eat lunch. And now they're really scared. They think, oh, my gosh, he thinks we stole the money. So they go up to his steward. Hey, this happened, this happened. The steward's like, hey, we're, we're aware. It's okay. So they pull Simeon out of prison. They're all there. And Joseph freaks them out. Again, they don't know who he is. Joseph freaks them out because he has them seated at the lunch table in order of their age, oldest to youngest. And so now they're looking around going, how did he know? You know, what in the world is going on? They're so scared. So Joseph, first time he's ever met Benjamin. He meets Benjamin, you know, whatever, whatever. He says, all right, y'all story checks out. We're going to give you some grain, you know. But he tells his stewards again, hey, I want you to slip all their silver back into their bags. And then Joseph had this symbolic cup. He says, I want you to take my cup. I want you to put it in Benjamin's bag. He's still messing with them, right? So sure enough, next morning they get up to leave and they've got grain. They think everything's good. Okay, we finally got the family back together. And after they leave, Joseph looks at the captain of his guard and he says, hey, as soon as they get outside the city gates, I want you to take the police and I want you to go stop them. And I want you to accuse them of stealing all this. So sure enough, they do. And again, just can you imagine the fear, right? And these brothers are so upset. They're like, we would never, we would never, we would never. We did not do it. We did not do it. We did not do it. As a matter of fact, one of the brothers says, hey, none of us took that cup. If you can find that cup in any of our bags, you can just kill whichever brother has it. I mean, they, they really loved each other. Can't you tell? So, so sure enough, they start opening bags and each of them find their silver and they're freaking out. And then Benjamin opens his bag and Joseph's cup is in it. And they're like, we take back what we said. You can't kill that one, you know? You can't kill that one. So they all get dragged back and they're terrified and they're talking to each other along the way like, we're just, this is God punishing us for what we did to our brother Joseph. We're, it's just all, we're reaping what we sowed. It's all coming back around. So they get back in front of Joseph. And he's just, he's intent on just making them pay. He's got the upper hand. He's got all the power. But here's what he notices. They all begin to beg Joseph, without knowing who he was, they all begin to beg Joseph to spare Benjamin's life. And they begin to offer themselves in return for Benjamin. And Joseph, at first, he's so hard-hearted. He's like, no, 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 no. You know, he's the one who did it. He's the one who's going to stay here in prison. We're not doing that. But he sees these brothers, they've changed. Now they're not treating, you know, daddy's boy Benjamin the way they treated daddy's boy Joseph. Now, they're actually being loving. They're actually willing to sacrifice for him. And somewhere in the midst of that, Joseph realized, oh my goodness, what am I doing? 
I've been so confident God was with me and in control of my outcomes when I was at the bottom. But now I'm at the top and I'm holding all this power. Now I've got the upper hand and I'm trying to take matters into my own hands. And so he breaks down and he looks at him. And he says, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? Can you imagine the drama in this moment? The writer tells us his brothers weren't able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. I'm sure they were. Joseph goes on. He says to his brothers, come close to me. It's like, no, you don't believe me. Come here, come here, come here. I'll prove it to you. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt, to which all the brothers went, oh, that brother. Oh, yeah, we totally forgotten. We're so sorry. That was Reuben's idea, by the way, Joseph. I don't know if you knew. It's like, I mean, they just immediately... They're terrified, as you would expect. And they start bickering among each other. So Joseph looks at them. And he says, and now do not be distressed. I mean, y'all calm down. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Somewhere along the way, Joseph was reminded to step back and to remember that in all of his power and all of his success, he still was not in control. In all of his power and all of his success, he should still do what anybody would do who was confident God was with him. And so Joseph does an extraordinary thing. He forgives his brothers, and then he says, I want you all to go back and get dad and the rest of the family. I want you to bring them all here. I'm going to give you a place in Egypt to live. I'm going to provide all the food you need. I'm going to take care of you. He's just so extraordinarily generous to the very people who had betrayed him. Now, why do I bring that up for this reason? And here's where our stories intersect. Because there will come a point, if there has not already, there will come a point when the people who hurt you are going to circle back and need you. And you're going to have the upper hand. You're going to have all the power. You're going to be successful. And you're just like me. You're going to be tempted to believe that you're in control now. That you can handle all the outcomes. That this is your chance for payback. But before you do that, You should ask yourself the question, well, what would somebody like me with all of this power, all of this opportunity, with all of this success, what would somebody like me do if they were confident that God was with them? And I think Joseph finally teaches us what they would do. You know what they would do? They would forgive. They would forgive. Not because those people deserve it. They would forgive because they would realize, oh my gosh, When I didn't deserve it, when God had the upper hand, when he had all the power, he forgave me. So I'm just going to do for them what's been done for me when I didn't deserve it. They would forgive. And if you were confident God was with you, what they would do is they would give. Instead of using that power for payback, they would be generous. Again, not because the person deserves it. But they would give, they would help. Because that's what our Heavenly Father did for us. When we did not deserve it. When he held all the cards. He forgave. And he gave. And he still does. 
So when you're sitting there with all the power, with the upper hand, when life is good, when you feel like, man, I got it rolling, everything's happening, I'm in control. Maybe you should pause and remind yourself, no, I'm not in any more control up here than I am or was when I was down here. And maybe, just maybe, what we should do in those moments is to do what love requires us to do. To love those people who have hurt us and now circled back to us, to love them just the way Jesus chose to love us. To do what we would do if we were absolutely confident God was with us. And can I remind you, we, can, we are confident. We can be confident because our leader and our king died for us to show us he was for us. And to show us he was with us. He showed us exactly what love looks like when you're holding all the cards and you've got all the power. Love looks like serving. Love looks like putting the interest of the other person before themselves. The power is not for your benefit or mine. It's for the benefit of the people around us. So maybe... For all of us who things are great right now, maybe God has us where we are for a purpose. And maybe we need a perspective bigger than just enjoying everything we have. Maybe we need to remember to forgive, to give, to live as if we were confident. God was still in control. And he's with us. Let me pray for us. Father. It's a whole lot easier to talk about that than it is to actually do when the people who've heard us circle back and we see we've got the opportunity. It's tough. But would you remind us that you're not asking us to do anything for them that's any greater than what you have done for us. So would you give us the courage and the boldness to forgive, to be generous when they don't deserve generosity, to give instead of seeking payback. To live confident that you're with us. And the outcome really is in your hands, not ours. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, if you'd like more content like this, subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our Journey app to access all of our recent message content. And our app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. For more information on our church or to find our app or our YouTube channel, just visit journeycalway.com. That's journeycalway.com. Thanks for listening.